Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I don't know whether there's such a force in nature that can fulfill such a wish, but if there is, then you've condemned yourself. Condemned yourself to me. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am super excited to be joined by my co-host, The Last Disease, apparently the last of his kind, and also Mikel in the bottle. And I'm Kyle of Burger Verb today. <laughs> and uh, we were going to be covering The Last Wish. What's going on, Mikel? Not too much. Glad to be here. I'm, it's really cool that we're like almost done with this book. It's like we've been doing this for months. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we only got one more Whoa. after this, and then uh, that's it for The Last Wish, right? Yeah. Sort That's of right. destiny time. Ooh. Oh, yeah. It's, it's our destiny. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on with you, Aziz? Today, I am indeed the last Aziz. Uh, there can be only one. So I've got work to do because there's actually quite a few others out there. So. <laughs> but we'll talk about that some other time because that could be incriminating. <laughs> so I, I'll use my last wish to erase all evidence. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Geralt the Witcher and his best buddy Dandelion are battling a terrifying monster in the opening sequence. A catfish of enormous size on their fishing line. It's clear the companions are, as is often the case, hungry. While Geralt is warning him he's holding on too tight, the poet is going on and on about how they'll cook it and how impressively large it is. Later, Dandelion refers to it as a son of a catfish, so we can assume he's taken a great interest in his fish's ancestry as well as its various edible parts. But just as you shouldn't count your chickens before they've hatched, one shouldn't count their catfish until they're reeled in. Indeed, the fishing line does snap, and they're unable to reel the creature in for further inspection of its heritage. They argue briefly over fishing technique. As is often the case, Dandelion's anger is gone in seconds as something else grabs his attention while they're pulling in their other lines. Ha! Look what I found! Geralt approached, curious. The find was a chipped stoneware jar, something like a two-handled amphora, tangled up in netting, black with rotten algae, colonies of caddis larvae and snails, dripping with stinking slime. Geralt wants to examine the seal on the amphora, but Dandelion is already certain it contains a djinn and says he needs all three wishes for himself. Some tugging ensues, and then... The jar fell to the sand during the scuffle, and luminous red smoke burst forth. As the smoke begins to form into a large head with a beak, Dandelion demands that it obey. Geralt, already running for his silver sword, demands that Dandelion run for his life. He confidently stands facing the djinn and utters two rather petty wishes, one that a troubadour named Valdo marks not do so well anymore, and that a count's daughter named Virginia love him. It's surprising he managed to get that far, considering... No one ever found out Dandelion's third wish... Two monstrous paws emerged from the horrible head and grabbed the bard by the throat. Dandelion screeched. Geralt manages to swipe at it with his blade, strike it with the sign of Ard, and pull Dandelion behind him. But the creature seems more bothered than truly harmed. Geralt happens on the seal, laying on the ground near where the amphara broke. 
Geralt, not having the least idea of what to do, squeezed the seal in his fist and, extending his hand towards the assailant, screamed out the words of an exorcism that a priestess had once taught him. He had never used those words until now because, in principle, he didn't believe in superstitions. The effect surpassed his expectations. (laughs) The creature seems pained, turns into a cloud of smoke, and dissipates. Geralt rushes to check on his friend, finding that not only can he not speak, he coughs up blood. Seeking to help him find a healer in all haste, he rides for the nearest town, Rinda. Rinda has rules. Rules that say if you aren't special, you can't come in after dark. Being hurt badly doesn't make you special, turns out, and they're forced to hang around with a bunch of other people also waiting for dawn and entrance to the town. One of the men recognizes Dandelion, having seen him perform. Another, an elf named Chiridian, or Chiradin rather, offers to help, but quickly declares himself unable to after he learns what caused the poet's affliction. Chiradin is a skilled healer, but of natural maladies, and this one is supernatural. This is normally bad news since Rinda has provisions against mages, but this one is using a combination of ambassadorial immunity and the standard intimidation of facing anyone who finds himself in conflict with far more, someone par, far more powerful than they are. As Chiridian describes this sorceress, Yennefer of Vangerberg, there are hints that he has personal feelings on all this. Indeed, we learn later, he's quite in love with her. Geralt goes to the house where she's staying, a wealthy merchant ambassador from Novigrad named Bo Berent. After knocking out the stubborn doorman, he walks inside, only to find a naked man struggling to deal with an order for apple juice. He's none other than the merchant. Quite drunk, it seems to Geralt, and the juice is apparently for this very Yennefer he hopes can save Dandelion. Arming himself with the apple juice, he proceeds. As he opens the door to the next room, he smells some ordinary but powerful scents, but something else unusual, lilac and gooseberries. The smell grows stronger as he approaches a winding staircase at the end of the room filled with the remains of a feast and discarded expensive clothing. Finding himself in a bedroom, Geralt clears his throat to announce his presence. This is a large, scarred, white-haired man with extremely unusual eyes. Most women finding this man in their bedroom out of nowhere would at least be startled a bit, if not downright frightened and or quite angry. Yennefer's priority, however, remains the apple juice. Geralt's is still saving Dandelion, so he tells her he needs help. After some magical and verbal for banter, she says she's heard of him, but never met a witcher in person. She agrees to hear him out, but only because of the apple juice and only after she's had a bath. It's fairly clear she runs this house and gets what she wants. She'll save Dandelion, but she gets to ask all the Witcher lore questions she wants in exchange for a start, as well as at least one more condition. Make use of the opportunity to have a bath yourself. I can not only guess the age and breed of your horse, but also its color by the smell. (laughs) Bath time and story time and question time are efficiently combined into one, with Yennefer using an invisibility spell to bathe modestly in the same room with him while he sits on a bench. He tells of Amphora as the soap forms an outline on her body, distracting him. She's surprised to hear of the gin in the bottle, though Geralt argues it's no gin, but a form of crimson mist. Yennefer also asks how he defeated the creature, and he tells her he used an incantation. Strangely, she laughs when told what it was and warns him not to use it in other temples. Geralt goes from speaking to a sudsy sorceress to helping her dress, all the while enjoying the process, while the smell of lilac and gooseberries becomes even more of an association. She tells him she doesn't think the incantation did anything, and he can't disagree, but also doesn't think Dandelion's wishes were relevant either though she seems to react oddly to the idea that he's already expressed wishes, she also agrees with him with a smile that this wish business is all just a fairy tale. 
Yet she immediately asks for the seal on the amphora. He does answer it, but dodges the question. They teleport to Chiradens and chat with the elf while Yennefer gets to work on the healing. Chiraden muses that she never does anything without getting something in return. Geralt responds that he's only trying to help his friend, that he'd do anything for him, including sitting naked on a scorpion. That's precisely what you've got to be aware of most. The elf smiled enigmatically. Because Yennefer knows it, and she likes to make the most of such knowledge. Don't trust her, Geralt. She's dangerous. He thinks the elf is exaggerating and suspects he has feelings for her that are warping his judgment. This is advice Geralt himself should probably be taking. As he waits, the Witcher muses on the nature of family and beauty and marriage as it pertains to sorceresses, druids, and priestesses. Eventually, she bids Geralt to come in the sick room, informs him he'll recover his vocal talents, dandelion that is. Geralt is relieved, though his mind continues to wander, thinking about her. Perhaps that's why he's slow to realize what else is going on in the room. Dandelion is asleep, but appears to be dreaming, yet thinking he's having sex with the girl Virginia he tried to use his second wish on, while Yennefer has, shall we say, prepared the room, especially. A glass sphere the size of a small watermelon, aflame with milky light, lay in the center of the floor. The sphere marked the heart of a precisely traced nine-pointed star whose arms reached the corners and walls of the small chamber. A red pentagram was inscribed within the star. The tips of the pentagram were marked by black candles standing in weirdly shaped holders. Yennefer informs Geralt of the price for her healing of Dandelion, the seal. He believes this to be dangerous for his friend and refuses. She, however, in her own words, always gets what she wants. She will have the seal. And she demands payment for more than just Dandelion. Geralt owes a debt as well for his insolence, his sarcasm, his staring at her. She has debts in Rinda she intends to settle, and he is the one to do it. She grabbed his hair with both hands and kissed him violently on the lips, sinking her teeth into them like a vampire. The medallion on his neck quivered, and it felt to Geralt as if the chain was shrinking and strangling him. Something blazed in his head while a terrible humming filled his ears. He stopped seeing the sorceress's violet eyes and fell into darkness. He was kneeling. Yennefer was talking to him in a gentle, soft voice. He awakens in prison. That's confusing enough by itself, and he notices Chiraden is with him, which initially adds to the confusion until he learns that the elf is able to explain what happened. Her flaunting of rules and taxes had caused several high-ranking members of the town to act against her on a number of occasions. One of the tactics they used was slander. In this, they seem to have stooped rather low, veering deeply into misogyny and vulgarity. For those insults, Yennefer had Geralt give the payback, and apparently will suffer the consequences too. He lectured the town on the proper usage of the term whore. That alone wouldn't have gotten him into any real trouble, but then he beat up a number of citizens and authorities, including high-ranking officials, certainly enough at this point to warrant an execution. For both him and Sheridan, who is guilty by association after trying to interfere. They expect to be hanged. But Counselor Laurel Nose, personally affected by all this, decided Geralt needed an extracurricular beating. One of the guards, a tall, strapping fellow, bald as a knee, his mug covered with bristles like a boar, pointed at the Witcher. He's repeatedly punched in the stomach, but decides it would be better for his internal organs if they knocked him unconscious with a blow to the head. So he tries to anger the man by wishing that he burst, while insulting his mother in a manner similar to what he just lectured the town against. The bald guard ground his teeth, stepped back, and took a swing, this time according to Geralt's plan, aiming for his head. But the blow never came. The guard suddenly gobbled like a turkey, grew red, grabbed his stomach with both hands, howled, roared with pain, and burst. 
Next, we see, so have the clouds. It's thundering. And so is the mayor. He's extremely unhappy about this strangely exploded person and all this magic in his allegedly magic-free town. But the priest Krep, a wielder of magic himself, though he calls it faith and prayer, thinks it must be Yennefer's doing. It was this priest who broke Yennefer's spell over Geralt, and it's well known that she and Laurel Nose are at odds. Geralt tells them almost everything. The priest understands, saying Yennefer wants to control the djinn, that it would give her great power, but it requires enslaving the creature, which, of course, it does not like. Genies, Crap turned up his nose, are spiteful and deceitful beings. They don't like being packed into bottles in order to move mountains. Off screen, Yennefer's clever plan has reached what she expects is the final stage. She intends to capture the djinn while simultaneously saving Geralt. She teleports Dandelion into their midst after having used the same mind control spell on him that she used on the Witcher. He says, As soon as I had arrived, I was immediately to say, I quote, My wish is for you to believe the Witcher is not guilty for what occurred. That and no other is my wish, word for word. The priest grasps her plan. By the content of the third wish, Geralt is to be freed from prison. And by the fulfillment of its duties, the djinn is freed from Dandelion and can return to its own dimension. But Yennefer aims to trap it before it can escape. Just as understanding comes, the thunder peaks as well, and they realize that as they've been speaking, the djinn is fighting to escape Yennefer's clutches. The thunder is the djinn, and it's a particularly angry display. The mayor's concerned for the town, and Geralt is concerned for Yennefer, and smells lilac and gooseberries again. Krep thinks she's doomed and is happy about it. But Geralt convinces the priest to teleport him to Yennefer, and he respects the bravery. Arriving in the large common room of Airedale's Inn, he finds her surrounded by Arcana. She's surprised he's willing to help after what she did to him, but also isn't interested. He insists that she's not powerful enough for this djinn. She insists she is. She tells him she cannot protect him and will send him away. She opens a portal to send him through. Instead, as the djinn enters the room, Geralt puts himself between it and her, and it stops. Then he grabs her and takes her with him through the escape portal. They land amidst oysters and argue, then wrestle, then teleport again, but sloppily. They fell, shattering the stair balustrade, and with a deafening crash, landed on the table. The table had the right not to withstand the blow, and it didn't. Yennefer found herself under the table. He was sure she had lost consciousness. He was mistaken. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, Krep has again figured things out. No wonder the djinn never struck Geralt and didn't respond to Dandelion's wishes. No wonder that man burst. No wonder she can't capture the djinn and doesn't understand why. The third wish has not yet been uttered. She forced Dandelion to make his third wish, but he had no authority to make that wish. Geralt owns the wishes and still has one more. And no wonder the djinn is even angrier than really, really angry. Geralt, when he uttered those words while grasping the seal, wished for it to get out of here and screw itself. How does a djinn even do that? We learn a lot about djinns in this story, but not that. Except that doing so makes them angrier. We can assume it figured out a way, since it obeyed the get-out-of-here part and has since returned. Geralt reveals the truth to her that he has the wish. Still, Yennefer refuses to let go and demands Geralt make the wish so she can proceed with the original plan and capturing it as soon as it's released from its wish duty. But he believes it will kill her, so by not making the wish... eh? Krep continues to understand the options here. If he expressed the right wish, if he somehow tied his fate to the fate... No, I don't think it would occur to him. And it's probably better that it doesn't. But that is indeed exactly what he does. She yells suggestions at him, but all he can think of is her. That even in his thoughts, he could never betray her. 
The witcher suddenly understood what it was he wanted, and he made his wish. The house explodes. The gin roars with laughter, and once for each wish, circles around the town, taking out the spire of the town hall for good measure on the third pass. Geralt and Yennefer, they're tied to each other with bonds as sure and permanent as those that she sought to hold the gin with. But these are given with love instead of force, giving willingly and in relative equality rather than a bond of slave and master. As Dandelion, Mayor Neville, and the rest consider how to memorialize the witcher's sacrifice, thinking he's dead, it would be more fitting to say that he and she were reborn. They were caring and tender, and although neither quite knew what caring and tenderness were, they succeeded because they very much wanted to, and they were in no hurry whatsoever. The whole world had ceased to exist for a brief moment, but to them it seemed like a whole eternity. And then the world started to exist again, but it existed very differently. So let's get into our reactions. All three of us really like this story. And this is probably, I don't know, I was in Reddit and talking to other people. This is probably the most popular short of the short stories in the two books. So I know a lot of people were hyped for this, but yeah, it's, it's such a really interesting story. It has really interesting themes. Of course, we also have the Sapkowski inversions with a little bit of the Aladdin and the genie in the bottle. And I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a good mix of funny, a good mix of serious, a good mix of introducing Yennefer and moving the plot forward. I think the first time I read this, I really liked it. And then I kind of read it like briefly a couple of other times. And I I didn't like it as much because some of the sexism kind Mm -hmm. of comes through a little bit more on, on, you know, second (laughs) read. But but as I was reading it for this and really looking into it, I think this is a really layered story. And there's a lot going on kind of on a thematic level that it took me a while to understand. It's having a similar conversation to a question of price without putting that word to it or, or that name to it. And I, I find that really fascinating because it's all kind of that was very much about monarchy and what they can demand of, of everyone else. And this is kind of about what individuals can demand of each other and what power, what right power gives you. And yeah, I thought it was, it was really interesting. It's really interesting to see the themes and the question of price and also in the last, last wish all built around destiny mm-hmm. in, in different ways because they all, they all end up tying back to destiny and whether Geralt is going to accept it or not. Yeah, I definitely agree. Overall, it's really strong and it, it definitely gains a lot on rereads. There's a lot of hidden themes and some things that are really powerful that continue on later. And so on reread, you see where some of these things get set up or, or are being set up and you see where they resolve or, or get used later. And there's a lot of a surprising amount of world building in this one. Lots of mentions of, just mentions of characters that become really important later, but they're barely mentioned here. So it's just like very minor setup, but that's fun on a reread to see those names get mentioned and to see them come up. Sapkowski likes to play with sort of straightforward dialogue and, and silly dialogue. And sometimes that can mask the seriousness of the themes behind them all. And he does that so well. We, we covered that last time as well with Edge of the World. I, I'm really impressed with how he's able to describe love and new love and these feelings in the same way he avoids dealing with what the third wish actually was. He does all these things by describing what's around them without describing the thing that's generating those feelings. And it's really, really great. I, I, I couldn't put that into words. I still don't think I put it into words that well, but I, I hope that's close. <laughs> he's, he's elliptical. He, he, he talks around the things that he is 
talking about a lot of the time. And he tricks you because sometimes he could just comes out and straight up says things like we had the whole monologue about about like sorceresses and whatever. So I think we expect things to be told to us. And then when they're not, it comes across sometimes as an, an omission until you figure out that it's actually there. Yeah. Well, one thing that was really interesting is the transactionality of uh, what's going on. We're going to talk about consent and all of that. But what's really interesting is, you know, Geralt's trying to get something, right? He's trying to save his friend. And then Yennefer finds an opportunity. Then they're both in this conflict and they have to make sacrifice in order to resolve the conflict. It's, it's, really, it's really cool to see because they're like, Yennefer is a very strong-headed person, right? And when Sapkowski introduces you, you're like, wow, she's a bad bitch. She's like running a business, <laughs> like running a brothel. She's like imprisoned in this town and there's like gender inequality. And so it's like really cool to kind of see how he builds it up until the end. And then you're like, oh, okay, they, they are going to compromise. <laughs> yeah. A lot of mirroring in this one. Not only do you have scenes that play out parallel while one person describes what's happening, another usually it's Krep describing like the magic uh, that's happening and describing what decision Geralt and Yennefer are facing while they're actually in the action and dealing with it so they can't pause to think. But also in terms of things that are the things that happen in the story, just how intensely someone will fight to maintain their freedom, whether it's the catfish at the beginning of the story <laughs> or the djinn at the end, which is a much more conscious being, or it's the, or Geralt thinking of that poor giant bumblebee that he and Eskel tied a rope to, which is a particularly strange, but very fitting memory for it to fit in here. And then we have things like no one ever found out what Dandelion's third wish was, or no one ever found out what Neville was thinking. No one ever found out what the Chamberlain would demand. Like he just uses these, these things for humor as uh, Sapkowski delivers each short story throughout The Last Wish, we get to learn more about Geralt and why he is the way he is, like his relationships, why it's so difficult for him to trust people and love. And then we, we, see, we start to see some changes now. And then throughout, you know, when we get into Sword of Destiny, we kind of get Yennefer's story. We get a little bit more of her. And then, you know, we, we get to find out more about that. So it's really interesting because love is such a big theme in this. You know, Mikhail read that beautiful quote that they found peace for a moment. It kind of just highlights how difficult their lives have been. Yennefer, you know, being this sorceress and having to deal with all she has in her history. And Geralt, of course, having to deal with the trial of the grasses and being a witcher and all of this discrimination. We've talked about discrimination for multiple different characters, but for them to be dealing with it together and have to come to compromise on that is... For two such strongly willed characters is a big deal. <laughs> yeah, well said, well said. And just on kind of like a writing note, two things that I think are really interesting. One is the incredibly dynamic way that the portal popping scene is written because you can really visualize that. Like that's not a problem to see in your head and it, it's very cinematic and just plays really well off the page and is very funny. But then also about that quote, you know, it's it's so interesting. It's sort of, I think, emblematic of Sapkowski because a lot of what he, he does is kind of like, it feels very base. It feels very gross like what, what, what are Gerald and Yennefer doing they're having sex like it's not you know whatever but you know but between the fact that Trayden keeps talking about like grand words and like and and then the way that Sapkowski writes about it which is kind of in a grand way and that like this is an emotional connection not just a physical one finding the sublime in the ordinary and the base is something that I think Sapkowski is really interested in and really good at throughout mm. the series 
this is a big deal, right? Like, even though we don't really know what the last wish is, uh, they have a true love for each other. Yeah, we have we have an idea. We have we have an idea of some of its parameters, right? Mm. We don't know exactly the wording, but we have a lot of concept of what it involves. <laughs> and, a, and, a, and an interesting word choice, you know, the word "condemned." I think we were saying when we were talking about a disease is is, a, is not necessarily you. you uh, that's not in your marriage vows. <laughs> yeah. Also, it's Jennifer's reaction. Like Jennifer is an independent, powerful person. If he had used the wish in a way that like bound her to him in a way she didn't like in a way that she thought was oh. like enslaving she wouldn't react so positively to it right that's very clear that she's not only approves but is kind of blown away by it and like wow you gave this power up for me like you could have used your wish on yourself but you did it this way so that just is really moving right because it is hard to give up power it's hard to give up that much power especially she like she's truly shocked right she's like oh like i mean yeah they both could have died. So he uh, <laughs> so he had to make a pretty big decision there. I wonder if it's kind of like find my fate to hers rather than find her fate to mine. Oh. Mm-hmm. That would be a little uh, more selfless. Yeah. Right. But again, I mean, that's the pattern, right? Like, the, go for yourself to the gym. <laughs> and, then, and then I hope you burst to the dungeon guy. And then this transcendent, incredible bond between these two people that comes to define both of them and series life and dandelion and this, the series, you know, yeah. just is, it's an incredible <laughs> kind of contrast that he does. There's like a, a continuation of several minor themes and major themes. Like the, it comes up a lot where people ask him about his scars. There's more of this elf world building uh, and other things like the societal world building, but also this, being Geralt being wrong about magic, being confidently wrong about things, about the djinn, about the details of djinns, even after realizing it is, in fact, a djinn, not some new crimson mist. <laughs> even though it came from an old bottle. Like, <laughs> he's like, no, it's new. And about the, and about the wishes, too. Dandelion yes. is wrong on a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. He's more, yeah, he's more wrong than Geralt. That's true. <laughs> Sapkowski has a background in economics. And... When you think about the stories that you know reference that, it's not a question of price, it's eternal flame from sort of destiny. It comes up a couple of times in the main novels. So it's really surprising to me to find this here. But I think the whole story revolves around the ideas of desires fulfilled and giving and taking and how, how those interact. Pose initially in the form of a wish and the idea of wanting something, that's important enough to land in the title of the whole the whole story collection. Like the whole, this book is called The Last Wish for a reason. This is, you know, a very important idea. But Sapkowski challenges the idea that wishes are free. Mm. Um, there's always a question of price, mm-hmm. I think. The, the magic lamp comes at the cost of the escaped catfish. Geralt pays unknowingly for the for the gin's wishes with Dandelion's health. Although that's partly Dandelion's fault also. <laughs> Yennefer um, charges Geralt to pay her own debts in exchange for helping Dandelion. There's no such thing as an unanswered debt in the story. Everything is priced extremely carefully, and sometimes it comes at a very high cost. We can see this through the whole story. It's it's a really funny moment when Geralt breaks into Barrett's house and you know wallops the doorman with the sack of coins, but that's also literally a monetary Mm. transaction. You know, money opens all doors. (laughs) The reason Yennefer is in Rind, um, and and I think it's notable that she's staying at a merchant, is because Mm. the mayor 
wants the wizards to pay taxes on their own magic and they're refusing to do that. So they're at an impasse about, you know, about commerce. Yennefer also agrees to listen to Geralt because their interaction begins with an offer. He he gives her the apple juice. (laughs) (laughs) That that's my favorite scene, by the way. I love that scene. Probably deeper down, she's also like opportunity, (laughs) but you know, yeah, she's like, "Mm." (laughs) yeah, it's great. I knew what form of payment I'd demand from you. My accounts in Rind could be settled by anyone, including Shereadin. But you're the one who's going to do it, because you have to pay me. For your insolence, for the cold way you look at me, for the eyes which fish for every detail, for your stony face and the sarcastic tone of voice, for thinking that you could stand face to face with Yennefer of Engerberg and believe her to be full of self-admiration and arrogance, a calculating witch while staring at her soapy tits. Pay up, Geralt of Rivia. And the idea of everything coming at a price really quickly escalates into a very high stakes and very unequal kind of transaction. Um, Yennefer doesn't just want fair pay in exchange for services rendered, because that's what Geralt offers her. He's like, I'll give you what you want. And then she views, but she views Geralt as owing her way more than Mm. that, as owing her so deeply that it's fair, it's a fair exchange for her to strip him of his agency and really almost cost him his life. Yeah. I love it. And that's when she, you know, kisses him. Yeah. So she's saying, you have to pay me back, not because of what I've done for you, but because of what you've taken from me, from the details that you've gleaned from me, from looking at me while I was naked, even though you, whatever, you couldn't really see me, but you could. I didn't choose to give that to you. And so you're going to pay for it. Tangentially, I think it's important to note that the magic in this story really revolves around the price of power. Um, you know, crap basically tells us that using a gin is a magical cheat code. Basically, it's like a, a coupon. Um, <laughs> That's a good way to yeah, put it. Yeah, <laughs> the sorcerer is, is so much more powerful. But not only are they more powerful, they don't have to use their own power. They're using the gin's power. It's, they're not spending of their own strength. And the same goes mm. for using portals, right? Like they're, they're magical cheats. And I think Geralt's skepticism at portals initially is very telling because he's like, you know, everybody's like, oh, they're safe. They're free to use. And he's like, yeah, I've seen people like literally be cut in half and disappear. <laughs> you know, so the price could be very, very high. Another bits of, of how he mirrors things. This comes up again with the loving. Geralt at the beginning is trying to stop a loved one from dealing with power beyond their control. With Dandelion, it's very simple with dealing with this catfish that's too strong for him, that the line can't hold. And Yennefer at the end, of course, they both have these big plans. They're both this, uh, kind of describing the same problem, but Dandelion's version is is much more microscopic, right? The power of this giant catfish isn't... <laughs> he just wants to, you know, use the head for soup and, and yeah, eat it. Yeah, while we're know? on the subject of catfish, I just have to say this is our first reference to fish soup, which will become very <laughs> yes. important later on. <laughs> we've, we, we've had flying fish, fish soup, like, uh, like what's with Zapkowski and all his fish, man? <laughs> fish bring everyone together. That's just... That's true. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> it's a relation fish. <laughs> Did you say relation fish? Yes, that's what I said. <laughs> that's pretty yes. good. Relation fish. We have a real relation <laughs> fish with this story. Okay, well, Macrophage in the chat is saying that Sapkowski actually loves to fish and wrote a short story for a fishing magazine. Really? Oh. <laughs> so we can put this one on the troll board again. <laughs> <laughs> Sapkowski.
Don't apologize. I know what you feel. I doubt it because I don't know myself. The elf smiled. The smile had little to do with joy. That's just it, Geralt. Precisely it. There's so many joinings and bondings in this one, whether they're intentional or not, or whether they're willing or not, whether it's a matter of capturing someone, enslaving a being or a person, or getting them to do your bidding. It's, it's a part of this transactional discussion that we're having, but this is as a parallel theme or overlapping theme, I guess we could call it. And it really just lasts the entire way through from, from the first part of the story till the very last bit. So I find that particularly clever and, and well-made as far as the, uh, the craft of the story. It's really, really clever how he manages to do all that what, with everything else going on at the same time. He slides it into a fishing story, which is like, you got, you got to really look, you got to be like, what? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, I get it. And then once you see it, yeah. Obviously, transactionality has a lot to do with consent. Transactions can't be considered fair unless they're entered into with the consent of both parties, right? Like that's, that's how commerce is supposed to work. But Jin, the major magical element of the story and the kind of avatar of fulfilling desires, um, fundamentally lack consent, which gives us really all the information we need to understand hmm. why the genie in the bottle is so pissed off. Um, <laughs> this is really emphasized with Geralt's first wish telling it to go fuck itself and it has to do that. Like, it's really funny and it's played really funny. But if you think about it for too long, it gets really uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, because like literally, like how would you do that? It yeah. sounds uncomfortable. Well, also it's a sexual transaction that the, that the jinn has no say in. Yeah, that's a good so, point. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting because the westernized version of the genie in the bottle is always portrayed as some sort of like good thing, like you're getting wishes. And then if we, you know, see it throughout history, it's like the the jinn and the and the devil, the devil spirit, are seen as kind of mostly the same thing. So making a deal with the devil is not necessarily a good thing because there were, it requires a sacrifice. Right? You think you're getting what you want, but you probably aren't. The devil once is trying to con you, whereas the jinn is like. Let me go, you jerk. <laughs> like, I will get my revenge on you for capturing me. Yeah. yeah. And it comes, it comes back later with Geralt and Yennefer because Yennefer views Geralt as kind of depriving her of her agency, bodily speaking. You know, he's yeah. like looking into her past. Um, so she treats him in kind. There isn't actually any sex in their initial interaction, but it is very explicitly sexual. Yeah. Um, Geralt is very turned on by, by Yennefer's figure. <laughs> Dandelion is having sexy time dreams um, in that room that <laughs> Geralt so is a little bit like perplexed by. And his first wishes revolve around, yeah. like, he picks one woman. You know what I mean? He's like, he's not very high minded, but he didn't think that through very <laughs> <No>. much. <laughs> he's like involved so with like funny. 50 different women, but he's worried about one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't true. like this other part. I want him to die. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, basically, what Yennefer decides to do is treat Geralt as her own wish-fulfilling being without agency, her own djinn. And she straight up tells him that she could force him to lick her if she wanted to. <laughs> you know, she kind of initiates the spell with a very violent kiss. Um, but what she does instead is she unleashes him on the people who have sexually insulted her, who have called her a whore. Um, and have cast aspersions on a lady's honor, you know, and kind of treated her as less than, I think, the businesswoman that she sees herself as. Yeah. Well, we see yeah. Geralt spanking Laurel Nose in the street. Yeah. All right, you made that sexual. I'm, I'm, I will stay neutral. That's a good point. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I don't know. I kind of saw it as kind of like kinky. 
<laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> Given the misogyny behind these insults of calling women whore just because, just because you want to, just for no reason other than you want to bring them down you want to insult them or, or lower their reputation in the eyes of others. So that's obviously she, she pushes back against that. But it's meaningful that she has a man do that. Because if you have a society that is misogynistic, where all the very patriarchal, men don't listen to women. So even powerful women. So having this brute deliver the message is very much in line with how these men are, are used to being communicated with. <laughs> you know, they're like, they don't listen to women. So he's just like, well, you're going to listen to this man <laughs> through me <laughs> one way or another. This is kind of the perfect storm, actually. Yeah. Uh, because Geralt is a witcher. Yeah, and he's standing in the middle of the town square, like this intimidating, like, bearing and, and uh, his loud voice. And people are like, whoa, who's this guy talking? Let's listen to him. And if, if Yennefer's up there, people are going to be like, oh, you know... Get get out of here, sorceress. We don't trust you, witch. It's it's funny that it happens to Geralt because Geralt is also judged like this in multiple different places. Like this has happened to him before, mm. right? So partially why Yennefer and Geralt are able to understand each other a little bit better than other people because they have both went through the same things. Yeah. I think obviously this, this story is kind of like dripping in sex, honestly. Um, you know, but, and and <laughs> what I find really fascinating, especially as it plays into transactionality, is that it's almost always tied to uh, excess and to riches and to you know all these things. Like Moran's dining room is it's like sex all over the place, you know, with like peach pits on the table and a turkey leg and an empty wine <laughs> goblet and a, and a Jennifer's shoe on the table and everything is kind of dripping. And then the bed obviously has like naked fawns all over the place, you know. <laughs> Oysters in her cleavage. Like... Yeah, exactly. So then we get to that other banquet and it's, and they're grappling, they're physically fighting as everyone knows, a couple of steps away from having sex and stories. Um, <laughs> but also amongst socialites. Right, yeah. yeah. And then, and then Which is ironic. <laughs> and, you know, like, uh, I, so I think, like, it's really telling that all of these things are kind of the standard view of the way both of them sort of view sex. Like, I, to go back to the show for a second, Geralt actually does solicit a sex worker in one of the earlier episodes, I think. Yeah, um, Betrayer Moon. yeah. And she's and asking about his scars. <laughs> right, yeah. exactly. And I think yeah. that's part of, you know, and, and Yennefer obviously is like sleeping with a merchant in exchange for being able to stay in the town. I love that when they do end up having sex in the end, then like having actually an equal exchange, again, using grant words for something. But <laughs> they they do it in, in a destroyed house, in a wrecked house. There's It's an equal transaction. There's no, like everything's dirty and broken and, you know, not worth anything even if it is insured. Um, and, yeah, and I, I love that it, it all kind of strips away. And what, what ends up being the true wish and the true transaction in a sexual way is something between just, just two people. It's, it's kind of it's kind of an interesting concept. They're in a destroyed house. You know, the world is kind of destroyed and different for them because they they don't get. Uh, we're talking about inequality here. They don't get treated as nicely as regular human people. So for them to have that embrace in this destroyed house is kind of like also this mirroring of the world where all of this crazy stuff is going on. Yeah, like like phoenixes. Yeah. Phenai. What's the plural? <laughs> <laughs> Phen- <laughs> 
So yeah, certainly Geralt's dedication is a big thing here too. His dedication to Dandelion. I mean, he shows that his he takes extreme responsibility for anything he thinks is well, thinks he has responsibility for. He he doesn't shirk, and he's also very loyal to his very few loved ones. Fighting for Dandelion's life, doing just about anything it takes. He says, "I would sit on a scorpion for that guy, even though he's an idiot and pretty much <laughs> did all this to himself." Um, but. <laughs> I love how Sapkowski plays with the idea that love is magical with using actual magic, but using also actual love. I mean, it's very common in fiction or heck in nonfiction for human beings, for authors, to just regular folk to describe love as magical. It's one of the most powerful emotions we have is perhaps the most powerful. It might be. Yeah, it might be. Magic as love is not meant to be taken literally in the real world, but here in this story it is because magic is real in this story. So it's a really neat overlap of real love with bonded love, magical love, and he did it in a way that removes a lot of the inherent power dynamics within a relationship because they're magically bonded and there's like there's now rules around them, but they're rules that to their relationship that neither of them thinks is unfair or unequal even though we still don't know what the wish is, we get that sense of it. So that's really cool. And we have Yennefer's reaction, which is obviously super powerful. Yeah. Again, the fact that she doesn't get mad about being bound to him is extremely telling given how independent she is. Yeah, that's huge. Honestly, there are a lot of questions I would have for Sapkowski, but my biggest one would be like, please just tell me the story <laughs> of that priestess who told Geralt that incantation. <laughs> like, I need that in my life. So he's said, right, this is an idea, this is an opportunity for him. He said he doesn't really want to write a Witcher prequel, nor could he really write a sequel. So he did, so Storm of, our Season of Storms is a, is a midquel. So if he wanted another midquel, that could be it. That could be the story of Geralt yes, and, the, and the wacky incantation. Yes, please. <laughs> a gin in a bottle, muttered Vladimir, like a fairy tale. Not quite. Geralt indicated Dandelion curled up on the pallet. I don't know of any fairy tale that ends like this. I feel like that's Geralt being like, you, you, Sapkowski, you're the one who writes the fairy tales that end like this. He's just telling us right there. Yennefer says, oh yeah, gin's really a fairy tale thing. And this, Vladimir says, a gin in a bottle, like a fairy tale. Yeah, they're, they're, he's not um, under the radar with that at all. He flat out mentions the word fairy tale a few times. So, of course, a lot of people are going to think of Aladdin, uh, Thousand and One Arabian Nights because of genies and jinns. But actually, that's not that close of an association here. It, it is by association, but it's not direct. The Aladdin movies are obviously a popular association, but the Three Wishes things was an addition to, to the Disney version. That has nothing to do with the original Aladdin Arabian Nights. Uh, in fact, there's multiple genies in the originals, and those genies are not particularly angry, and there's unlimited wishes from them. Perhaps a better parallel is The Three Ridiculous Wishes by Charles Perrault, written in 1697. It's a French literary fairy tale, and it's apparently the first ever example of the three wishes trope in all of literature. In this story, a woodcutter gets three wishes from Jupiter, who's the god of thunder, after he complains about his poor lot in life. He ponders with his wife. He gets, he's like, I better ask my wife, and we should think about very carefully what to wish for. He accidentally wishes for a sausage. He just kind of <laughs> casually says, man, I wish I had a sausage. And, and he gets the sausage and she's like, you idiot. Why would you do that? You know, be careful. And he gets mad that she's insulting him and says, I wish the sausage was your nose. 
And here's a great quote. Fanchon had been pretty once, and to tell the truth, this ornament did not have a very pleasing effect. Go figure! He Her just, sausage he, nose was not appealing. He, hmm. Pinocchio? Yeah, yeah. sausage <laughs> Nokio. yeah. What? Pinocchio fairy tale? What? <laughs> so he realizes, oops, he's been an idiot, he's, like his wife said. So he uses the third wish to make things normal again. So there's a there's some very strong parallels here. Of course, the god of thunder versus an air spirit, right? That's the 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 wishes originate from a, a similarly powerful wind being. We have wine is really important in this because he's drinking when he drinks the wine is when he gets stupid and wishes he had a sausage to go with his wine. So that's kind of the wine versus the apple juice sort of thing. There's a fight slash argument over the use of the wishes. Then there's the wasting of the first two wishes and then using the third wish to fix the problem. And there's accidentally using a wish, like Geralt accidentally uses a wish to burst that guy, which is similar to, I wish I had a sausage. The woodcutter and his wife make up. He could have easily just used the last wish on himself and just left his sausage-nosed wife behind. But he doesn't. He's, he ends up being an honorable guy and sticks with his wife. They have a happily ever after sort of. That doesn't happen a lot in wish stories. I feel like it got a lot darker in the subsequent uh, developments. Yeah, I think so. This one isn't. This one has a happy ending. I mean, basically, it ends the way it started. Like everything is back to normal. It's an interesting idea in stories that like the best use of power is kind of maintaining either the status quo or improving things on very small levels. We, we talked a little bit about kind of making a deal with the devil and, and most jinns are seen as non-benevolent. However, some jinn nevertheless are benevolent towards humans, teaching humans a moral lesson. And I kind of think this is oh. what happens in The Last Wish. Yeah. This is uh, in the Quran and, and way, way, way back, thousands of years ago, this uh, theology, when this theology was around. So... We hear the idea of spirit guides all the time and, and religion and stuff like that. Dubious that the herbal oil will ever be more on point than it is this time, though. I have kind of have been surprised before. Like ever, almost every time I'm surprised by how on point the herbal oil is. So this time it's also ties directly with the influences. So we have another literary influence tied to the herbal oil. It's really cool. So... Start off with lilacs, which are not tied to the literary side, and then move on to gooseberry, which is. Okay, so the lilac, they bloom when spring is coming. Like They're sort of like the flower version of the groundhog, where if the lilacs are blooming, spring is coming. So they're a harbinger of spring and renewal, which is obviously a big thing here mm. with the end of things being destroyed and Geralt and Yennefer being Rebirth. reborn. Yeah, And Yennefer was born on Beltane, which is the beginning of spring, which also Siri was born on there, so... That's cool for them. Generally white or purple or in between, like a pinkish. And Yennefer's eyes are purple, so that's a really good fit. Very commonly, they're seen as a symbol for the first emotions of love, i.e. new love. So boom, right there. Uh, uh, a lilac. And he always talks about how he never forgets that scent. Yeah, yeah. It's, it comes to him even in times where he shouldn't be able to smell. Like when they're in this swirling vortex, when the gin is attacking them, he still smells it. <laughs> it's like, wait, there's like wind everywhere. And he's like, I smell lilac and gooseberries. <laughs> he's like, we know his sense of smell is really uh, strong but damn. Um, so now within an existing relationship, a lilac is a symbol of jealousy or suspicion of infidelity, which 
hey, no spoilers, but no. <laughs> there is some jealousy in this relationship totally later. Totally irrelevant um, to this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, who knows, yeah. Also, it's a funeral flower in both Christianity and ancient Roman belief. Also, it has a heavy as- association with innocence, which, you know, she's not innocent and even a little. But Geralt thinks she is for a while there. He's, he downplays like, oh, surely she's not that bad when Geraden's like, she's going to want something from you. <laughs> you know, he's like, ah, you're exaggerating. So he's thinking of her as a lot more innocent, but nope. And, and Macro points out in Chattisies, in Poland, lilacs are flowers. Moneyless kids bring for their moms on Mother's Day. Oh. So gooseberries. Now, gooseberries are associated with, wait for it, Wait for it. Anticipation. Ah, gotcha. <laughs> wow. It was difficult to research the plant gooseberry because there's a play called Gooseberries by Anton Chekhov, oh, as in Chekhov's oh, wow. gun, the same guy. Um, and of course, the, ch- the odds that Sapkowski isn't aware of Anton Chekhov are ridiculously tiny. A central theme in the story, Gooseberries, is social inequality. <laughs> and it's how power can make you detached from the, the suffering of common folk. Luxury leads to contentment. Wealth and power puts you out of touch, things like that. It makes you blind to suffering, inwardly focused on luxury, things like that. We see that with all the excess in the, in the, the high society and, and all that. It's, that comes up in a number of ways. So in ancient legends, too, fairies would hide in gooseberry bushes. That's made a little magical connection there. And also, there's a place called Skillinga in Sweden that has a gooseberry festival. And Skillinga obviously sounds a lot like Skellige. So I swear one day we're going to find out Sapkowski has some giant secret hidden garden vault filled with like his own hybrid plants that no one else has ever seen. That would be amazing. Of course. It's an invention, a fairy tale devoid of any sense, like all the legends in which good spirits and fortune tellers fulfill wishes. Stories like that are made up by poor simpletons who can't even dream of fulfilling their wishes and desires themselves. I'm pleased you're not one of them, Geralt of Rivia. It makes you closer in spirit to me. If I want something, I don't dream of it. I act, and I always get what I want. We usually don't talk the TV show too much, but it fits so well here. Yeah, so I think it's really interesting that the the backstory they give Brianna Burr, I guess minor spoilers, is that she is sold by her father to to Saya in order to go to um, Aratusa. And he pays four marks for her, which is less than the price of a pig, I believe. And to me, that plots in perfectly with what Yennefer is kind of all about in the story. She began her life defined by that monetary value. And then that continued as, you know, she was a sorceress. I think one of the more problematic things that Sapkowski writes about in the story is the idea that, you know, the sorceresses are <laughs> reprinted, are, you know, adjusted to look pretty, uh, and they're transformed into pseudo-pretty girls for the, the esteem of their profession, because it would kind of lower their value otherwise. It would lower the value of witchery and sorcery, sorcery because it would, it would cheapen their mystique, basically. Even though he, he kind of makes a note that's like, nobody would actually say that they're pretty. We just kind of like respond to them as pretty, which is a whole interesting thing of itself. But Yennefer 
you know, has gotten to a point where she uses both her beauty and her magic to her own advantage. She goes to a place where her services can net premium price because nobody else is doing magic there. Um, and she can enrapture pretty much any man that she feels like. But the fact is she still doesn't have everything she wants. There's a gap in her life that can't be filled by either aesthetics or physicality or power. Um, it really isn't until she meets Gerald and they do connect on a non-contractual level. They connect as people and they give to each other willingly, generously, that she can begin to be free of some of what is basically a capitalist definition of her entire existence. And I also just wanted to note, because I'm weird and like historical clothing, Bukowski writes that when Jennifer's getting dressed, that she doesn't bother with the whalebone nonsense that other women had to because she didn't need it because her figure is so beautiful she doesn't need to wear a corset. In reality, most women wore corsets because it was basic underwear. (laughs) (laughs) It's a pretty basic article of clothing to wear. Mm, Kind of ironic to me that both Geralt and Sapkowski attribute corsets exclusively to the aesthetic and just like it's only there to like create a figure that would not be there. It would be an illusion, right? When that's actually what Jennifer's doing. She's she's illusioned <laughs> herself to be naked uh, and to be invisible while she's naked. And her whole appearance, obviously, as I said, is an illusion. So, yeah. It's not just personal to her, but she understands that there's value in that. Yeah. Like, right. And, and so does because society recognizes there's value in that. She's not blind to that. Yeah. <laughs> but But men constantly try to downplay that value. And that's part of the story here is Jennifer's like, no, I have the power to enforce the terms the way they should be. I set these prices. Men don't set the prices on me. I mm-hmm. set the price on me. Right. <laughs> Which is interesting because kingpins are usually men and she's like the kingpin in this situation. So yeah, right. She is a yeah. crime boss. Yeah. But she understands her value. Obviously, that's, that's what Sapkowski is trying to show yeah. us. She, she controls yeah. the entire flow of magic. Yeah. So she's, she's in yeah. charge of that of the resource. And she has other people doing her like she is in prison. Like you said, she, like she has to stay inside her house. Like a lot of crime bosses can't just walk out in the street because they have so many enemies, but they can send their Geralt, <laughs> their underlings out to do their, to go, yeah, to go issue beatings and give speeches in the town square. So it's, <laughs> it's, just, it's just really interesting to see how much she accomplishes, even though she's kind of like her back is against the wall, you know? Yeah, because she's just because she's had some falling outs with different factions, and we kind of know the poli- We'll get more into the politics as we move on through the story. And she she'll never admit that she's been backed into a corner, right? Like this is exactly what she does with the yeah. gym. You know, Ooh, it's like, yeah. dude, like it has nothing to do with your power. Like you're exhausted, and you 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 can't beat the gym. Like you just can't. It's it's not a, about. She, yeah, she doesn't want to admit that, but she it's, it's yeah. She won't. She absolutely won't. Yeah, she's like, it's not so easy to kill me, which is such a bad line. Tris Marigold is mentioned in this story for the first time ever. And Yennefer just says, my friend Tris, which is interesting because if you've seen the TV show, you know Tris, or if you've read ahead, obviously you know who Tris yeah. is. But the fact that Yennefer has a friend is interesting, just as a side mention, because she seems she comes off as independent and outside of a lot of these other magic users, like outside of their society. So that that is telling. Is there's so much setup here, even though some of it is barely set up, just mentions of names like Triss has just mentioned. There's yeah. almost no description of who she is or what she's doing or anything other than being Yennefer's friend. We get Vesemir, Eskel, and Kerr Morhen mentioned here too, which is yeah. those are all important, but barely references the fact that it's Kerr Morhen is the Witcher's settlement. That's the first time it's ever mentioned. It's like, oh, they have a settlement? And that's really cool. But it, there's so many rabbit holes in the story. We had to decide 
not to go down all these rabbit holes because it would make the episode monstrous. And we have upper, other opportunities later to talk about Vesemir, Eskel, Caramore, and all that. So Yeah, I, I, I was kind of like, guys, how much do we want to say about the prophet Leobitus? <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, nothing. <laughs> and of course, we mentioned it briefly too. Chiraden is important because the, the idea of, of, of seeing both kind of versions to make it simpler, simplify saying both versions of elves where you have the settled elves and the not settled elves. I don't want to say wild elves because that's not really the right term, but they're certainly not settled amongst humans. They're, they live in their own civilizations and have this animosity, but there's obviously, these guys are quite content, apparently, living amongst humans and standing up against humans and running businesses. And this Vladimir guy has, is part human. He's like part elf, part human. We're not, it's not entirely yeah, his heritage isn't fully explored, but just the idea, the concept of this is is raised, and that's that's interesting because the people with mixed blood is certainly important in a society that has a lot of racism or prejudice. The the mixed race people often have the bear the brunt because they face the prejudice from both sides. A nobleman muttered Geralt, but a closer look at the coat of arms embroidered on his tunic shattered his hopes. A shield divided per cross and bearing golden lilies was cut diagonally by a silver bar. Vratimir was not only illegitimate, but came from a mixed human-non-human union. As a result, although he was entitled to use a coat of arms, he couldn't consider himself a true nobleman, and the privilege of crossing the city gate after dusk most certainly wasn't extended to him. Him being a half-elf, there, there's some discrimination going on there. We, obviously, we talked a little bit about this in the Edge of the World episode with uh, everything that's going on with Philovandril and the elves and them being pushed to the edge of the world. So this is something that continues. So basically, you have to walk around with people being like, oh, you're illegitimate. <laughs> it's a very big deal in this world to display proper heraldry. And I believe that was the case in a lot of real world different periods in, in Europe and other places. Displaying something above your station can get you in huge trouble. And, and we see in this story here, and I, I, there's probably some real world parallels to that as well, if your sigil ranks high enough, you could get into the town at night. So there's actually specifically coded laws determined by your rank. And it comes back to value, right? Like it comes back to how much, like it's almost like when they're trying to, to cross into the city, it's like insufficient funds. You know, you're not important enough. Your, your value is less than what it would cost to get you into the city. And all of these people, despite their different backgrounds, are in that, in that boat together. So... Let's go on a little short journey of, of connected details here. Here's a quote from the genealogy stuff that Sapkowski wrote. So this is not from this story. In the cut-off shield in the golden upper field, black lion walking, lower black field without mark. It was customary, however, that the royal firstborn sons used the changed coat of arms, namely by adding a third black field to the shield in which three lilies were silver. So the Three lilies, three silver lilies are the royal family of Tamaria's, uh, an important association there. Uh, they used to be gold. Originally, they changed them. And this sigil that Vladimir has is golden lilies. So I think that is relating to the nation of Tamaria because all this happens is Tamaria. Rinda is in Tamaria. And when Dandelion pulls up the mess of stuff on the fishing line that includes the amphora, the first thing he says is, Ha ha, look what I'm bringing in. It must be the wreck of a barge from King Desmond's time. What great stuff. Look, Geralt. So Desmond was mentioned in that quote about the founding of, of Tamaria. He's the first king of Tamaria, and he was one of the first three human kings ever on the continent. And Foltest and Atta, from the very first short story, are his descendants. So he's the founder of that dynasty. 
So this takes us to the, the seal slash amphora itself, which of course is referred to in that last anecdote. And we have a little quote here. It was a brass seal decorated with the sign of a broken cross and a nine-pointed star. In real life, the nine-pointed star is from the Baha'i faith, one of the larger world religions. It's also a minor symbol in Christianity. It's sort of like the Holy Trinity multiplied by itself. You know, three by three is nine. Three wishes as well. Yeah, yeah right. So that fits nicely here. In the Witcher world, it's the sign of Jeffrey Monk, who was one of the first ever Nordlings to become an expert in magic. He was an original member of the chapter of Wizards that contains, at the point of this story, where the story takes place, it currently contains people like Tissaia and others. Monk was able to capture jinns and extract wishes from them. So this is part of why Geralt was just wrong, because this was actually known in the continent that there was a guy who captured jinns and extracted wishes from them. And that Yennefer was sort of following in his footsteps and trying to capture that same level of power he had. He was an, also an early expert on teleportation. And he, his experiments, he wrote a book on it. And so that's woven into the story as well because there's a, a lot of teleporting in this story. So that's pretty cool. There's a lot, there's this, this woven, weaving in of Jeffrey Monk as a, as a progenitor of some of these ideas, uh, of these powerful ideas. And that's pretty cool. And we also get a very good explanation of how a lot of this works from Krep, who is, despite being a priest, is very knowledgeable. He seems to be the, like on top of almost everything in the story. He figures so many things out. Plus, he already has a lot of information, a lot of education. And this is perhaps one of the best little quotes that gets at Whenever that. he speaks, it's like built-in foreshadowing, I find, in this story. <laughs> yeah, He's yeah. like info, info dump man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Enchanters, explained Krep, draw their power from the forces of nature, or to put it more accurately, from the so-called four elements or principles, commonly called the natural forces, air, water, fire, and earth. Each of these elements has its own dimension, which is called a plane in the jargon used by enchanters. There's a water plane, fire plane, and so on. These dimensions, which are beyond our reach, are inhabited by what are called genies. A genie like this, Mayor, is a living reservoir of magical energy. A sorcerer who has a genie at their beck and call can direct that energy in the form of spells. They don't have to draw the force from nature. The genie does it for them. The power of such an enchanter is enormous, close to omnipotence. Gives us maybe a clue, or at least helps get us closer to what Yennefer actually wanted from the jinn. It may have just been like power for power's sake, but like y'all said earlier, she may have had a specific goal in mind you know, like having a womb again, a functional womb again or something like that. Mm. But we're just mostly just left to guess. We learned like Jeffrey Monk used it just to have an easier life, <laughs> like to float around. And there's that anecdote of a dude who moved a mountain just to improve his view. There aren't suggestions of great things done with this level of magic, which is really interesting. Because like, wow, they have this level of magic, but they used it for things like changing their window view and and being able to float and like they could have done amazing powerful things but if they did we don't know about it so i think that's interesting yeah i, th I think it's it's also worth just noting you know going back to like we, we don't know why in the story in the text why yennefer wants a genie and i think we can take away from that you know obviously like the, the extra insight we get from the show about her wanting to have a child but like the fact is, I think she is just using power as a substitute for, you know, her, her the gap in her life. And, mm. you know, it's uh, not going to be filled by power. Well said. So 
Jin, Arabic, uh, J-I-N-N, also romanizes Jin, D-J-I-N-N, or anglicizes genies, are supernatural creatures in early pre-Islamic and Arabian and later Islamic mythology and theology. Since jinn are innately evil nor good, Islam acknowledges spirits. Some people say that jinn are not strictly an Islamic concept, but may represent several pagan beliefs integrated into Islam. So that's pretty interesting. Both devils and jinns are seen as kind of similar things and are featured in folklore and responsible for misfortune, possession, and diseases. However, the jinn are sometimes supportive and benevolent. And I found this part the most interesting, guys. They are mentioned frequently in magical works throughout the Islamic world to be summoned and bound to a sorcerer, but also in zoo, uh, zoological treaties as animals with a subtle body. So we hear, oh, yeah. so we hear the beak, all of that. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, it has a beak. Yeah, good call. So the westernized version, obviously, in Disney and and other movies and stuff, has been seen as mostly positive. But it can be seen as also making a deal with the devil and where we have to make sacrifice. And as for its direct relation to the story, it's it's fairly clear the ideas here of the things you said with misfortune and possession and all these things and the idea of enslaving another being... Uh, or of capturing the power of the elements. That's really neat because we all know that in the in the real world, the ancient times, super ancient times, pre-historical times even, people worshipped the forces of nature. Every, every body, every natural feature was considered to have a deity by a lot of ancient traditions. Like this river had a, was a deity in this river. There's a deity in that mountain. There's a deity in this and that. So the wind, fire, all the earth, wind, and fire, you know, the band, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Fire Nation attacked. <laughs> and then the record companies came and everything changed. Well, it's really interesting because the Arabic word jan, which is the primary meaning, is to hide or adapt. So that's pretty, mm. so concealed by the senses. That's pretty interesting. And then jannah means garden, Eden, and heaven. So kind of the more wishy, fulfilling the granting side of the genie that we also see. Yeah, this is pretty interesting. I mean, uh, it's in Zoroastrian uh, mythology, which uh, I love. Ancient Syrian texts, the Quran, and also in Christianity, it's also mentioned a couple times as well, but more in relation to the devil because, you know, obviously each religion and each story throughout time, they kind of take from older religions and then they kind of adapt it in their own understanding, I guess. Yeah. Magic users are in society are a bit of a parallel to this idea because as we see in the story, what's his name? The mayor is trying to extract money from magic users. It's like just we want to tax them for having for what they're born with or what they the, for a developed innate a skill that they have. So it's kind of unfair, and that's what Yennefer is pushing back against. And the, but it it's parallel idea here that society is trying to take or control the power of these rare citizens that have these abilities. Oh God, we talk about that for an hour. It's like, <laughs> Oh God, yeah. This, this taxation, this idea of taking something, this price. Yeah, exactly. So that, that's, it just comes out from the story in so many ways. Like, we've, like you said, we brought this theme up all throughout this episode because it is raised in a variety of ways. Sapkowski has layered it through here in so many aspects of the story, which that's why the reread has been so valuable because you can't, you can't catch all those the first time through. There's too many layers and I'm really happy with how many more of these things emerged uh, this, this next time through. 
One other last little bit about sorceresses or sorcerers and families. We learn a very important piece of world building that's logistically sound. It's like, well, why don't people want their daughters or sons to grow up to be magic users? And, it, and part of it's social stigma, but, mo- but that's really almost forgettable in light of this other more important factoid, which is it becomes like decades to master these gifts. So if you send your daughter off to be a sorceress, she's gone. You send your kid off to college for four years. Imagine sending your kid off to college for 40 years. <laughs> Would you send your kid off to college if, if it was 40 years? I mean, forget money, like, like, let alone the expense of a 40-year education. Let's pretend there isn't even that aspect, which would be prohibitive if it did exist. But let's just, just pretend, just, would you send your daughter off to never, like basically never see her again? Yeah, it's a bad investment. <laughs> yeah, it's a bad investment. It's crazy. So that's why they, that's why the line, only daughters with no chance of finding a husband become sorcerers. It's not their choice. It's the family is realizing, well, this is not good for the family. We're basically just sending her away forever. And that's not even not loving necessarily. Sometimes it is, it is controlling, but it's also well, we don't want to never see our daughter again. That's just very human. So, But this is part of the transactionality of the story. She was sold yeah. for less than a price of a pig, man. Imagine, yeah, and, like, that, and that's yeah. part of why she's so sassy and so like independent. <laughs> she's like, fuck this. I'm worth more than that. Yeah, so she's, an, she's sort of a, an, an, almost an outlier in that her family wanted to get rid of her for as little as possible. Whereas a lot of these families, when they actually, you know, are normal families that, actually love their children or at least <laughs> are feel a duty towards them wouldn't do this. I, I, I don't mind the, the world building part of it. What, it. what more bothers me is like when Sikowski kind of seems to agree with some of it. Mm. But I, I do think, I mean, listen, it's not, it's not very different than like giving a kid up to be, you know, a, a, a priest or something, right? Like that, that's a system we're familiar with. Yeah. Giving your kid to the clergy. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's a certain amount of like, you have too many and <laughs> you, you get rid of them in whatever ways you can. But the idea that I think that this is a specifically noble thing. It's, it's, it's a little bit different than like receiving a ward from another kingdom and you have some sort of agreement or something. This is like mm-hmm. yeah, a, a little bit worse than that because <laughs> you're just kind right. of giving your kid away for a price. Like you've been selected to give your child away. <laughs> Aren't you proud? <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely uh, a darker morality behind this. Yeah. And then, you know, I mean, I guess you can contrast that with the way people think about, you know, sorceresses and like, they only do what's good for them and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, I guess if that's your background, like that's what you're going to do, right? You're not going to feel any loyalty to some random person on the street, even if they, they need your help or whatever. You know, it's, it is going to be very transactional. That's how you're going to do life. Right on. Especially with how hierarchy works and how witchers and sorcerers and, and magic users are seen in society. Let's get into some funny stuff. It's a pretty big section. I think this was the biggest <laughs> section before anything else. Uh, before, like when we first started our document. Yeah, it's, it's one of the most easy, it's one of the easiest sections to do because like, well, what thing did I laugh at the most? Yeah. <laughs> right. We don't have to think about it. Was this funny? Yes. Cool. <laughs> You want to start us off as ease? You got a good one. Yeah, so I love the beginning. He says, so much grub escaped. I hope you die, you son of a catfish. It's like, yeah, like, would I call you a son of a person, Kyle, if I was mad at you? Like, it's like if I were to call my cat, you son of a cat. 
Like, yeah, that's what he <laughs> is. He's a cat. Like, yeah. So, so I found this really funny too. Like, you, you said of a son of a beach, you said son of a catfish. That's kind of weird. <laughs> An- another thing that's kind of interesting too, it's not confirmed that Geralt says fuck after he says, uh, you know, when dandelions coughing up blood and stuff like that. But maybe this is the moment where we can assume that uh, Geralt says fuck in the books. And he says, you know, he's just, uh, he, it just says Geralt curses. And I just thought that was kind of yeah. funny. Um, so I, I kind of, I kind of accepted that he's saying fuck in that situation. And I just, that's when that first part of the chapter ends. It's just like, oh, yeah. Geralt curses. He's like, oh, dad, the line's such an idiot. <laughs> then we have, I shit on justice, yelled the mayor, not caring if there were any voters under the window. <laughs> I love that so much. I shit on justice. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Okay. Geralt, she interrupted sharply. I climbed out of bed for you and didn't intend to do that before the chime of midday. I'm prepared to do without breakfast. Do you know why? Because you brought me the apple juice. You were in a hurry. Your head was troubled with your friend's suffering. You forced your way in here and yet thought of a thirsty woman. (laughs) You won me over, so my help is not out of the question, but I won't do anything without hot water and soap. Go, please. Yeah, she's pretty great. Also, she clearly has to pee. That's what she's talking about. (laughs) Another morning inconvenience. So what about this though? Geralt spanking Laurel Nose in the streets. He's literally a freak in the bed and a freak in the streets. You know the saying? <laughs> yeah. What and what is up with name Laurel Nose? That's a great yeah. <laughs> Laurel Nose. Like I feel like there might be a little Polish joke there or in joke or something. I don't know. I wonder about that. I, I, it's it's funny, but I don't know why. I, I feel like there's more to it. <sighs> uh. <laughs> So we have be gone and plow yourself. <laughs> so good. Be gone and plow yourself. What a thing to yell at a gin. Wham. Geralt looked at the buckle of his belt again. Although it seemed strange, there was no hole above it through which the wall could be seen. <laughs> so he's being punched in the gut repeatedly by that guy who bursts. And he's like, I can't believe there's not a hole in my stomach after <laughs> <laughs> this one's really good too, Mikal. This is perfect for you. Yeah, so this is when um, Yennefer is talking about what she did to um, Dandelion. She says, His dream wishes being satisfied in his sleep. I probed his mind to the very depths. There wasn't much there. Which, which, goes, back, which goes back to my first point about Dandelion being an idiot in uh, our reaction section. Exactly. And then I love when they're in the prison. Sirs, said one of them at last, leave us in peace and don't talk to us. We be decent thieves, not some politicals. We didn't try to attack the authorities. We was only stealing. (laughs) (sighs) And that's, it goes, it shows that like, yeah, there is the, the common folk understand that it may not be fair, but it's true that political crimes are tend to be more punished than yeah. property crimes that, because the people who control the laws are the very people that are the ones having these crimes committed against them in these cases. Right. So. Well, that that seems to me <laughs> to be like a very kind of like Eastern European like communist rule reference where like it's worse to be a political oh. criminal than, you know. Kate Bertinsky <laughs> says, I think we should replace our colloquial obscenity with be gone and plow yourself. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, we should. Instead of saying F off, we should say, be gone and plow yourself. <laughs> it's really good. I'll try. Well, let's all do our part to start this trend. So commit. Oh. We want to thank, of course, everyone for joining us. We had a, a, a nice, great crowd in chat today. Just going to do some shout-outs of names here. Brandon Winslow, thanks for joining. Kate Bertinsky, Matt McSorley. We got Stacy 27 and Amy Blackfire and Richard Hoppy. I hope I said that right, Rick Richard. Hoppy, the maester of coffee. <laughs> Minge forever as well. Yormi, Jormingen Loki-san, Macro, of course, one of our uh, European friends, uh, Ryan Burns, uh, support, uh, one, one of the people who supports our pod on, uh, on Anchor. Anthony Shaddix was in there. Had lots of great folks showing up. Voice Helen Geekdom. was here earlier. Helen, of course. Hey, Helen. And uh, um, Amelia Lipka, I don't believe I've saw you in chat before, so welcome. Voice of Geekdom, another content creator. Thanks for joining us. So it's cool. Um, if for those of you that just lurk, we we appreciate you. If you don't want to join the live chat, but of course we invite you. Like I said, uh, podcast of surprise on Facebook. We're always doing chats and stuff like that. Memes. You don't have to just talk about the books. We talk about the games, the show, memes, all sorts of stuff on there. Um, also, I I don't know if people from Poland have read it. I think I think the whole trilogy might be out, but the um, Tower of Fools books by Sapkowski are starting to come out in the States, I think in October. So I have a, a like an advanced copy of the first book. And um, I'll probably be posting in the group kind of general thoughts and reviews and stuff like that. Let's let's give some thanks, shall we? Uh, thanks to Teleflora.com. I did some research over there. Thanks to the Witcher Wiki. We always refer we we frequently refer to it for uh, small or large uh, clarifications or explanations. Very helpful to us. And uh, of course, thank you to our supporters. Yeah, if anybody does want to support, hit that support button. We have a dollar option, $5 option, $10 option. Uh, of course, uh, you don't need to support monetarily, but we really appreciate it if you do. Word of mouth is very powerful because people don't recommend podcasts and, unless they like them a lot. Uh, people, I think people understand that these days because there are a lot of podcasts. So people don't just recommend their 12th favorite podcast. <laughs> Oh, thank you guys. I love this. <laughs> Stay safe. Bye. Bye.